Well, our ushers are passing out note sheets and pencils and Bibles if you need them. Uh, just raise your hand if you are without your Bible today and they'll bring one to your seat for you. We're in the book of Romans chapter 1 and we have a lot to accomplish this morning. Um, so I'm not going to waste any time. We're in Romans chapter 1 in the introduction to this wonderful letter that is so full of theology. But we know too, having gone through the last few weeks, the uh, first uh, 12 verses of this, this book, that uh, even the introduction is totally full of theology and things that the Apostle Paul wants to teach us, to equip us as the church to be ready to live according to the glory of God and to understand and appreciate the great things that he has done to make us his. So we are in Romans chapter 1 today, and we're going to examine verses 13 through 15. Uh, may the Spirit pique our interest, give us attention, and help us to understand the things that we're about to read. Starting in verse 13, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Let's bow our heads and thank the Lord for this great word. And then we will put our minds and thoughts about what it is trying to tell us today. Almighty God, um, there are many gathered here today. Some of us are wise. Some of us are foolish. Uh, some of us, Father, uh, have, have no, no background or basis with Christianity and are just learning these things for the first time. Others have, have been around the, the, that declaration of the truth for many, many years, Lord God. Uh, Father, regardless of where we come from, regardless of what our background is or what our innate abilities or restrictions are, Father, this gospel is for every sinner. And so I pray, Lord God, that all of us who have struggled to keep your command would think about the grace that is on display in Jesus Christ, even in these words. Help us, Lord, to take them to heart and help us to be doers of the word as well as hearers. Uh, but first, right now, Lord God, I pray that you would let these things settle into our spirit. Help us to understand them. And I pray, God, that the clarity that you bring, we would recognize that as a gift as well that comes only from you. Help us, God, to have the knowledge that comes from above. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul repeats in verse 13 what he has just said in Romans uh, chapter 1, verse 10, that he has had a strong desire to come and visit with this church in Rome for some time now, though the opportunity has not yet presented itself for him to do so. Uh, there are a couple things that compel Paul to make this trip, motivations for him. And his first motivation, uh, which we covered last week, was that they might encourage one another as fellow, discipleships, uh, fellow disciples of the same Jesus. Not only would Paul bless the Romans by preaching Christ among them, by encouraging them with sound doctrine and training them up, helping them to grow stronger in their confidence in this Lord who has saved them, but they would also bless mighty Paul they would be, by way of their testimony, uh, like a gift to him that he would be encouraged, that he would be strengthened to hear how Christ, Christ has provided for them and how he has strengthened them through every, uh, ordeal and desire that, uh, every ordeal that they have had to go through. Our desire to be near to other Christians should be great. We learned last week how important it is for us to have fellowship with the saints. And so we should love to be around one another. We should pursue uh, the, the kind of fellowship and friendship that comes with regular interaction with the body of Christ. So grateful to hear that the Guardies are back now. They've been away for a while, and I, I know they really enjoyed seeing their family, but I, I bet if you asked them, they would tell you that they missed being here too with their church family and the fellowship of the saints that comes with uh, being around your brothers and sisters day in and day out on whom you are engaged in the, the act of mission work and, and ministry. Um, today we look at another motivation for Paul's future visit. The first one was fellowship with the saints and the mutual encouragement that comes from it. But in order that Paul might reap some harvest among them, he also desired to come and visit to them face to face in Rome. Now, the idea of the harvest is indicative of language used throughout the New Testament scriptures to describe the joy of the productive reception of the people whom God has saved and brought into his church. Paul likely has a couple of different meanings in mind when he talks about the, the work that's going to happen in Rome as a harvest. Paul likely means this in terms of evangelism. He knows that when he goes to preach the gospel there in Rome, there will be people who are interacting with the church in Rome who are not yet saved. 
People who have come near to hear of this Jesus, who see the difference in the lives of these believers, they are drawn to it. They want to experience and learn more about it. And so Paul is eager to come and to preach the word to them that they might hear the, the glorious gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ and that some of them might be saved. And is there anything more glorious than seeing someone who is destined for destruction and judgment because of God's intervention being made new and being put on a new trajectory, not to judgment and damnation, but to heaven and peace forever with God. So there's something very motivating to Paul in wanting to go there to Rome and to preach this gospel to see what God will do in saving the lost there. There's an evangelistic end of this. But there's also a motivation in his heart in terms of discipleship here. The fruit of the harvest is not just saved souls, but it is also saved souls rejoicing in their salvation and glorifying the Lord for who they have been made. It is people who knew little of God beginning to know more and more of Him. It is people who walked with just a seed of faith, now growing in such a way that their faith is producing fruits that are blessing other people and helping them to understand how important faith in Christ is. So evangelism and discipleship are both in mind when we talk about this spiritual harvest that Paul is referring to in a metaphorical sense here. Paul made use of this metaphorical language in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're familiar with this. It says in verse 5, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who receives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers." And this usage that we, we just read in 1 Corinthians 3 is helpful to our understanding of the idea of harvest for it is not founded upon Paul wanting to further himself or to exercise his ambition. He's not saying, wow, man, I've I just got to fill up my silo of blessing. I've got to go to that church and I've got to prove that I can, I can preach that word, that I can, I can uh, help people overcome their sin and, and I can win souls, that I'm the, the most effective missionary. It wasn't about him at all. It was about the glory of the Lord shining in new in various places. God was the one at work by way of the Holy Spirit. And Paul simply wanted to obey the Lord's leading and in being involved in the process so that he might rejoice in the power of what God is doing to transform the lost. This whole metaphor very likely owes much to the teaching of Jesus when he, by way of parable, uses four different kinds of soil to describe the various ways that people typically react to the gospel message. He talked about the path and how the seed that falls upon the path, which is constantly pounded by the footsteps of travelers, will not make purchase because the, the ground is too hard. He talked about the rocky soil just off the path where there was much debris and there wasn't much good nutrients in the soil and so things would sprout up quickly. But when the sun came, uh, the, the sun would scorch those little seedlings and what seemed like faith would prove to be nothing true at all. And then the, the seed that is cast among the weeds and the thistles would begin to grow a little bit, but the, the things that surrounded it, the circumstances that it was receiving that gospel in would block out the glory of it, and there would be no true root grown in that individual. And then he spoke about this fourth soil, the good soil, where the seed of the gospel is to, to fall, and that good soil receives it well, has all the nutrients it needs to begin to grow deep roots into this great truth of the gospel and one day will grow to maturity and bear boundless fruit, an incredible harvest that can only come from the miraculous work of God. So in Mark 4.20, it says, But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. Thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. This fruit is, that is being harvested is spiritual fruit. It represents a harvest that, it, uh, that is exponentially better than the fruit we experience around our dinner, dinner table in real life. I guess we do family worship around the dinner table too. That's spiritual fruit, isn't it? We are blessed to see God create new believers and we have been given a responsibility to care for the blessing of new believers with the help of our Lord and Savior. So Paul's motivated to engage in this labor of ushering in the spiritual fruit of what God is doing in the hearts of sinner, sinners and to make them saints. 
And Paul says some things here at the end of verse 13 that help us to get to know a little something more about the church in Corinth to whom this letter is written. Anytime you start to read through a new book uh, of the Bible, you want to ask yourself, who wrote this book? You want to know uh, with as much certainty as you can who the book was written to because these are questions, the answers of which will help us to interpret it accurately and, and uh, with clarity. And so this reveals a little bit about the church in Corinth to us. He intends to accomplish this work of harvesting uh, among them as well as among other Gentiles. Now what can we discern from that saying there? Paul does not say, I'm going to do this work among the Gentiles only. He says, but among other Gentiles, meaning Gentiles like them, but different than them in that he's talking about the Gentiles in Rome who have not yet been saved. So this gives us a very strong clue as to the composition of the church in Rome. The church in that city, at least to a significant degree, consisted of believing Gentiles. And this may impact the way that we read certain passages and try to understand uh, how Paul intended uh, to communicate the things that he wrote to them and how he wanted them to be received. But this morning, I'd like to take a little time to consider this special calling that Paul mentions briefly in this introduction to the letter. Upon his conversion, Paul is immediately commissioned to, serve, to the service of the gospel. You might remember that Paul didn't come to faith in Christ the normal way that we do. He did not just hear the gospel from someone and then the spirit working believed, but instead he was stopped dead in his tracks and confronted personally by the resurrected Jesus. And so this experience whereby Paul was told, you have been fighting against my church, you have been, what he says, kicking against the goats, but because the command of God has come to you, you will now stop kicking against the church, stop fighting against it, but will now also be used as a tool, as a servant that will glorify the name of the Savior that you were formerly trying to silence. And so in Acts 19, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name, how, or to where? Before the Gentiles and before the kings and the children of Israel. Note that's a broad spectrum of his ministry calling at this early stage, right after he's called to, to belief in Christ. Paul's going to carry the name of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. Notice that is in first position in that verse. Then to kings. And if you've read the book of Acts, you know that he did have the opportunity to plead his case and to share the gospel with those who were in high-ranking places, uh, both in Rome and some of its provinces. And then also, ultimately, to the children of Israel as well. Take note of that detail. We're going to come back to that in a few minutes. So right away, Paul is made aware uh, that he's got a broad service. The Lord is going to use him to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and that the Gentiles will at least be a major part of that special assignment that he has been given. We see a progression in the emphasis in Paul's ministry later. Uh, for instance, in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 7 through 10, the apostle Paul writes, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is that plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places." Now this passage here in Ephesians 3 indicates the more narrow focus of Paul's ministry calling. He is being set apart specifically as the apostle to the Gentiles. Now there are a number of reasons why this obligation is placed upon Paul. God's graceful promise to Abraham that all the nations would be blessed by way of him was about to explode, was about to really bear true worldwide global fruit. In Genesis 26, 4, um, God speaking to Abraham says, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all of the nations of the earth shall be blessed. This alludes to God's overarching design for his covenant people. The nation of Israel that would spring forth from Abraham would first receive God's grace themselves. And then that same story of these people who did not deserve God's favor, 
uh, would then, in a fuller sense, be expressed throughout the world as God builds His church from people of every tribe and tongue and nation. And this church that He gathers together from such a wide variety of people from the four corners of the earth, He then goes on to call the Israel of God in Galatians 6.16. And so Israel is like a type. It is like a picture of what God is intending to do in the future. And then as God fulfills that in the future through Christ, the antitype, the fulfillment of these promises is the church of God, which becomes the real spiritual Israel of God, his chosen people who will be his covenant people for eternity. Paul, having clearly opposed the spread of the church at first, would now head up the effort that would grow the church far beyond the confines of Israel's 12 tribes. And this intention of God to allow the grace that he had shown to the Jewish people to expand into other people groups is illustrated in other prophetic texts as well in the Old Testament. We see it, for instance, in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, where the prophet said, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit, where? On all flesh. On all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And many of the male and female servants of the Israelites were foreign people, were those who had been conquered in wars or who had sold themselves into slavery. And so Joel talks about all flesh receiving the, the, the benefit of this promise, just as Abraham had been said that all the nations would be benefited and blessed uh, by the blessings that God was giving to him through covenant. So these two diverse categories of people, the Jews and the Gentiles, were decreed to one day experience radical unity by the work of God's Redeemer whom he would send. And it is only through Christ that the mightiest social barriers might be done away with. And people from extremely different walks of life can find a common ground that is so important and so powerful that it overrides everything else that might separate them. The message of, God, of the gospel of Jesus Christ tells us that despite the fact that we might dress differently than others, we might speak in unique ways from other people groups, we might practice different customs that carry deep significance to us, that at the core of, of what it means to be human, when you set aside all those cultural differences, we all have to contend with the same serious problem. And that problem is sin. It's a universal problem. It knows no boundaries. It does not relegate itself to a certain country or nation. Sin is everywhere rampant and must defe be defeated. And the only way that can be defeated is through Jesus Christ the Son. God is not pleased to save each different people group according to a way that is specially tuned for their culture. No, that's not how God saves. He doesn't say, well, with this people group, I'll save them through Buddhism. And through this people group, I'll use Hinduism to save. And well, this people group's not very religious at all, so we'll use philosophies to save these people. No, on the contrary, Jesus Christ himself said in John 14, 6, that I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. We're going through a stage with my daughter right now at home where her favorite phrase is, I don't want to. Those four words. She, is, she struggles with some other stuff. Man, she nails those words. Her verbal skills are attuned to I don't want to. And it's interesting to, to have to deal with that on a daily basis and to lovingly and gently correct her and to think and to reflect on how much I myself have a tendency, and we as human beings have a tendency to say that to God even when we don't say it. God, I don't want to. You have told me to do this, but I don't really want to. You've told me not to do this, but I don't want to abstain from that. Our hearts are naturally rebellious to the things of the, the, the Lord. We want Him to say, but we want Him to do it on our terms. And what a mistake it is to think that we know better than Him. Just the same, it's a mistake for my little daughter to think, well, I know better than Mommy does. I know better than Daddy does. I'm going to decide for myself how I'm going to walk through my day. And to be honest, it would be very unloving for mom and me to say, oh, you don't want to? Okay, let's just do what you want. Let's just let you set the agenda for the day. Let's let you decide what you'll eat and whether you'll ever take a bath again in the history of the world. Let's just let you figure that out on your own. That would be very destructive of us. We would not be good parents to love them in that way. Neither is, is God going to allow the whims of man's heart to dictate what they get to do. God has said, you are in sin. 
and I have one solution for sin, and it is my son, Jesus Christ, who came and took on flesh, who lived in this world that you live and faced the same sins that you do, and yet was obedient to me in every regard. Jesus never looked to the Father and said, I don't want to, so I'm not going to do it. He was always compliant because he understood that God is God. And so in humility, he walked in the ways of the law perfectly and did what we couldn't do. We are so blessed to have a Savior who fulfilled the law, but even more so, we're blessed to have a Savior who then gave his perfect life in exchange for ours on the cross. And friends, there is no other way to salvation but in trusting in that Jesus and knowing that his perfect work is the one and only way by which a person can come to salvation. Through his atoning death, the sins of all who trust are punished and God's wrath is satisfied. Through his triumphant resurrection, God displays his power to defeat death for us all. And by the work of Jesus, all kinds of people throughout the world, regardless of their background or what they thought they knew about about life and about the world, all kinds of people will be saved and are being saved even now as the gospel is preached. And Paul is given a stewardship in his time that is strategically designed to bring these diverse people together into the body of Christ. Another letter that Paul wrote was Galatians, a letter to the Galatians. It has a much different tone than the letter that we're reading today in Romans. But I want to share with you just a little passage that speaks about this in chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. It says, But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, this is Paul acknowledging that God had determined, even before Paul had ever taken a breath, that he would serve him. And, and though God allowed Paul to walk in a disobedient way and to oppose the church for a time, he eventually called him by his grace and changed his heart and brought him into his service. In verse 16, But when he who had set me apart was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. So look what it says there. It says that he was saved, he was redeemed, in order that he might preach Jesus among the Gentiles. Now this is a humbling reality that Paul has to come to terms with, that in being saved, a Christian is being saved into service. You're not just being saved out of destruction. That's part of it. But you're also being saved into a wonderful relationship with God whereby He is going to call you to serve Him and to look at His, His Word and to walk in ways that were foreign to you before He made you new. And His particular service would be to the non-Jewish people of the land, a, a, a people that were not His people. Paul was going to be reaching out to people who were in large part very foreign from him. This had been especially relevant in the context of the Galatian church, given the conflicts that had arisen there. A great rift was threatening to emerge between the Hebrew Christians and the Gentile Christians in Galatia as an outside delegation had come and preached a different gospel than Paul had originally given to them. And this group from Jerusalem insisted that salvation was initiated by the grace of God through Jesus but that anyone who desired to follow Christ must bring themselves under the yoke and the burden of the Old Testament law. So instead of preaching the, the, the gospel of saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone, these men were saying saved by faith in Jesus Christ and obedience to the covenant law that Israel already failed. So while the law would come to have an impact on these new Gentile believers in a very real way, Paul set about the important task of showing the church in Galatia that the new Gentile believers were saved to Jesus, not to the culture of Israel. It was not the law that was going to save them. It was not their obedience that qualified them for this saving grace. They wouldn't be required to be circumcised, which was the sign of the covenant for the Israelite. They wouldn't have to take on the dietary laws. They would not have to embrace any other number of civil or ceremonial regulations that God had used to set Israel apart from the other nations. They would simply believe in Christ. And then they would rejoice in being made able to follow after the commands that God had given. Not to be saved, but as a result of their salvation. The Jews and the Gentiles prior to the inception of the church were largely a separate people. 
The grace of God did not fall upon the Gentiles in large part unless they were to draw near to God through the nation of Israel. Ephesians 2, 11 through 12 says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh who were called the, circum- the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. In other words, these Gentiles were called uncircumcision because they weren't under the law of God. This circumcision that the Jews were under is, as Paul describes it, made in the flesh by the hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and stranger to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. See this distance, this separation between the covenant people of God and those Gentiles who knew very little about the covenant promises whatsoever. But oh, how that has all changed now that the Gentile nations are being grafted into the body of believers and made brothers and sisters to those who have been chosen by God. And Paul was not only a front row seat witness to this miraculous integration. He was also given this strong, how does Romans 1 say it? Obligation. The strong obligation to be used by God as an instrument that would help make it come to pass. Now it's worth taking a moment to dispel a couple of myths that have crept up around the nature of the Apostle Paul's ministry. First of all, Paul's special commission compelled him to preach to the Jews as well. Systematically even to the Jews. See, there are some who have interpreted the strong indication that Paul was to serve as the apostle to the Gentiles, and they've come to the conclusion that Paul's ministry was extremely focused on only the non-Hebrew peoples. Some would even suggest that the gospel that Paul preached to the Gentiles was a separate but unique gospel, different than the gospel that the others, such as the apostle Peter, preached to the Jews. But a broader reading of the scripture does not support that theory. Paul's ministry was not only to the Gentiles. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, what does Paul say about his ministry and about his work as an apostle? He says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew. Now why would he do that if he was not focused on ministering to them at all? He says, To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those outside of the law, the Gentile, I became as one outside of the law. And then he clarifies, not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside of the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. Can you imagine a man like Paul passing up an opportunity to share the gospel with someone simply because they were not a Gentile? Or can you imagine him setting the Jews aside saying, I'll get you later. You've got a different gospel. I've got to preach this Gentile gospel to the Gentiles. That doesn't make any biblical sense. He's not going to defer and wait around for Peter or James or another one of the renowned missionaries who had such a a great impact on the early church towards Jewish believers. He's not going to wait for them to come along and preach. He's going to preach to all. But he's going to do so with a special focus on those who needed to be grafted into the heritage of the original covenant people. Even a casual read through the book of Acts will show you that Paul, everywhere that he went to establish a church, would in fact reach out first to the Jewish followers of Yahweh in that town. He would start at the synagogues and he would preach to those who understood the language of the Old Testament covenants. And those who heard him and believed became his core allies in his mission effort in that place. But when those who heard the gospel and rejected it, Paul would then shift his focus to the Gentile people of that city. He would take those few who did believe and together they would try to reach those who had not grown up with the understanding of the Old Testament promises. And any notion that there was a gospel that was uniquely for the Jews, one that had any kind of substantial difference from the gospel preached by Paul to all the Gentiles that he encountered, it is categorically impossible when we consider the stern warnings that Paul gives to the church in Galatia. So in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6-9, through he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ 
and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. Note that. The exclusivity of the gospel. Only one gospel. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Not only is there no room for a second gospel, but a second gospel would intrinsically be an attack on the first gospel. There is one gospel that saves lost sinners, and it saves those sinners universally in the same way, through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So that's my first clarification. Though Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, that didn't mean that he was only apostle to the Gentiles. It didn't mean that he had no jurisdictional authority over others who were not Gentile. But there's another clarification I want to make here, and that's that the other apostles preached to the Gentiles as well. He was not the only one who preached to the Gentiles, right? And there are several examples of this, but I want to focus on probably the most famous one, which we see in Acts chapter 10. Peter, who was largely and widely known as the apostle to the Jews, has this experience where the Lord God gives him a vision, sends him a picture, a heavenly picture of something that he would not have seen otherwise. And through this picture, he shows him that the dietary laws that he had so religiously and strictly followed since he was a little child, those ceremonial laws were being lifted from the nation of Jews who believed in Christ. They did not have to follow those things anymore. Why? So that they could eat alongside the Gentiles. So they would not be confused in thinking that their diet was in some way qualifying them for salvation. Shortly after he sees this vision, he's alerted that there's a Gentile man, Cornelius, who has requested help. And he agrees to meet in Cornelius' home where several of Cornelius' family and friends have gathered. And it says in Acts 10, verses 34 through 35, So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And so there's, here's Peter, the apostle of the Jews, ministering to a house full of individuals who had nothing to do really with the nation of the Lord. They were not ethnically Israelites at all. They were God-fearing Gentiles, who now were becoming a part of the covenant family of God by the grace of Jesus Christ. And we read in that passage that the whole household is saved. There's people um, uh, uh, who are related to Cornelius who are also bowing the knee to the Lord Jesus. The Holy Spirit demonstrates the authenticity of their salvation uh, by giving them a special, miraculous outpouring of the Holy Spirit. They begin to speak in tongues and they prophesy. And Peter's amazed. He, He cannot deny. There's nothing that he can say that would argue against these Gentiles being treated in much the same way as the Jewish believers have been treated in that early church context. And so other apostles also reached out to the Gentiles. Apollos reached out to the Gentiles. We know that Barnabas, being a a Jewish man by ethnicity, was a fervent advocate for the Gentile believers early on. And remember, the church in Rome, though predominantly Gentile, was not established by Paul. That means somebody else did the work there. So the mission to the Gentiles is not exclusively Paul's, but it is, for himself, the primary focus of what God has called him to do. Now, how are these Gentiles who are being converted supposed to deal with the Jewish background and the roots of this new faith that was theirs through Christ? Well, there was a determination that there was no need to adapt the civil and the ceremonial aspects of the law that used to make Israel so unique among the nations. And it was very important for these Gentiles to understand that the moral law did not save them, but was important nonetheless for guiding the believer into better obedience to Jesus. And so Paul has this obligation, this commission, that he cannot ignore, that he cannot neglect. In fact, he addresses it strongly, 1 Corinthians 9.16, where he says, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. So he has this strong obligation to go into the nations and to tell people about the hope that is in him. It's not optional for him. He can't just do it for a while. This is not a short-term mission project uh, for our brother Paul. Now, when we think about this idea of obligation, that it was put upon Paul that he would live the rest of his life seeking to bring the gospel to foreign lands and to the people who occupied them, is an obligation Is this always to be seen as a negative thing? 
And I bring this up in large part because our culture tends to cringe at the word obligation based largely upon the disproportionate emphasis that we have traditionally put on our freedoms and our flexibility in life. An obligation can be seen as oppressive to the heart and to the mind. When somebody has an obligation, it almost feels like a prison sentence to them in our culture. But that's not the way that we should look at this obligation that has been given to Paul. An obligation, especially when given by the Lord, can be an internal motivation. Our conscience will sometimes weigh heavy on us when we see a problem that we know full well we should be a part of solving. We can at times be so convicted about our participation that we'll find it nearly in something sinful, that we'll be finding it nearly impossible to be at peace until we, we can repent of that sinful thing that others are doing that we found ourselves falling into. And so when we know there's something we should be doing or should not be doing, this obligation to respond to God in obedient love is a good thing for us. It motivates us from inside. But most of the time, an obligation involves some kind of external authority as well. One who is obligated may even be aware of stern consequences for not following through with the responsibilities that they have been given. But an obligation doesn't have to be a burden that one wishes that they were never commissioned to bear. Uh, last night, we had one of the boy's friends over for dinner, a young man named Drake. And uh, he comes over pretty frequently, and so he's used to the fact that after we eat, we typically open up the Word or open up a devotional, and we do some family worship time together. And so we were doing our family worship time, which every Saturday usually focuses on what's going to be taught in the main service on Sunday to get our kids ready, get our family ready for the things that we'll hear from the pulpit and, and engage in. And I was previewing the passage of Scripture that we're going to be learning together today. And I asked Drake, I said, do I have an obligation to feed you, Drake? And he puts his spoon down, <laughs> and he answered properly. He said, no, you know, I'm not your kid. You don't have to feed me. And so I pointed to my kids, and I said, do I have an obligation to feed these kids? And he said, yes. And, I, and then I said, you're right. And I, I amplified that. I said, if I do not feed my kids, what are the consequences going to be? Well, first, they're going to rebel against me, and there are more of them than there are of me. They're going to be pretty upset if I don't provide food for them, Right. But if I didn't feed my kids and I didn't do it consistently, the state could come in and take my kids, right? I could go to jail for child neglect if I weren't feeding my children because I have a responsibility, an obligation to care for my kids. This is something that I want to fulfill, though. When I put food on the table for my children and I see them enjoying that food and I know that my wonderful wife made an effort to prepare it for us, and we're together enjoying the blessings that God has poured out into our family. I just feel joy knowing that I'm able to provide nine slices of pizza to my older boys who consume food like crazy. And I'm also very grateful right now that we have 12 laying chickens in the backyard. Don't rob me of my chickens. But by the working of His Spirit, the things that God has placed upon us, we should feel strongly about them. But at the same time, we take note of the fact that Jesus has said in Matthew eleven twenty eight thirty, 28, 30, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Friends, if you did not have Christ standing in your place, as your mediator and your advocate, the yoke of Christ would crush you to dust. You could not keep the law of God the way you need to if Christ was not the one lifting you up and strengthening you. The fact that we have the Son of God who is willing to stand in our place and take all of the judgment for the sins that we have committed against the Father and that that self-same Savior is able to then empower us to walk in ways that are holy and that are pleasing to God, that is all glory to the one who saved us. There are obligations that come with the calling to which God's people are called, but because of the new life that we have in Christ, these obligations such as serving Him and serving one another, such as stopping for a while and having Sabbath rest in Him, such as the spread of the gospel that we are to take out with our testimony and, and share with our children and our neighbors and, and the world, 
such as the, the obligation to know God through studying his word, that we should, we should really dive into the scriptures and understand this God better than we do. These obligations needn't be seen as a weight that's tied around our ankles, some sort of burden that's slowing us down. In fact, as we mature, we'll tend to see these responsibilities as some of our greatest sources of joy and blessing. God gives these things to us because they're good for us, because he loves us. The magnitude of this calling to Paul may give us a better understanding now of why he would say, just a few verses earlier in chapter 1 of Romans, he said, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. That was a tricky little passage. I didn't have time to work out uh, last week when we were going through that. It says, For whom I serve with my spirit. Notice there, the fact that he says my spirit doesn't mean that he's saying that I, that I serve in the Holy Spirit, although the Holy Spirit was absolutely a part of everything good that, that Paul did. But he's saying here, I serve with my spirit, meaning his own spirit. And the best way to understand what Paul is saying there is that with my heart, with the core of my being, I serve the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's not rendering some superficial service to the Lord God. He's not just kind of walking it out. Oh, I got to do this. I might as well wake up today and share the gospel. I don't have a choice. No, this is Paul the Apostle who does have an obligation, an obligation that fuels him and drives him, an obligation that gives him great joy and love for the brothers and sisters who have been redeemed by the same Jesus he has. And so he is, he is honored and pleased to be able to share the gospel and to minister to these people in his spirit with everything that he is. And this gospel calling is not an obligation in the sense that it's some kind of punishment that he receives for beating up the church earlier in his life. It's an obligation in the sense that it has gotten down deep inside of him. He longs to fulfill this mission, for he has had great joy in doing so. It is his heart's desire to see people saved, both Jews and Gentiles. But because of the direction that his master has pointed him in, especially the Gentile nations that are under his charge, he wants to do this in Rome as well because not, he's not yet been there. And then once he's done it in Rome, he wants to move on and do it in Spain if the Lord lets him do it because there are many people there who have never heard a glimpse or a little snippet of the gospel. To get a little more insight into this wonderful obligation that is on the heart of the apostle, look again at the details of how he breaks down his calling and his charge. He says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Now, Paul's mention of the Gentiles as a special aim of his mission work shows us that the non-Hebrew nations would not be excluded from grace based on their ethnicity. But verse 14 also indicates that Paul was determined to preach not only to all tribes and nations, but to all those within those tribes, regardless of their intelligence level, regardless of their educational level, regardless of how much they could grasp with their minds, the gospel was good for all. Two comparisons are rendered here in this verse, but they, mo they make essentially the same point. And so first he compares the Greeks and the barbarians. Now when he speaks of the Greeks, he's actually talking about the Romans. He's talking about those who were citizens of the Roman Empire. Though Rome had conquered Greece, the empire of Greece, several generations earlier, it has been said historically that Greek, in a way, their culture conquered Rome. So much of what Greek was was advanced and wonderful and worth celebrating that it carried on into the, the, uh, the empire of Rome. And so they adopted the language of the Greeks. They adopted, in many ways, the, the religious practices of the Greeks and made them their own. They were, by and large, Greek in their culture. Now, the Greek language had become to dominate so thoroughly in the empire that many Greeks didn't even bother to learn any other languages. Though they had uh, successfully conquered many people groups with many tongues, they expected those conquered peoples to learn the language of Greek. To a refined Greek speaker, those who were outside of the Greek culture did not sound worth listening to at all. And here's where you get this phrase, barbarians. The barbarians were not like a certain, a certain nation of people. It wasn't like the Germans were barbarians. That's not what it was, okay? Barbarians were from all over the place. They were essentially anyone who did not speak the, the Greek language in their normal day-to-day -day communications. Because of that Greek language becoming so widespread, 
If those who came in tried to speak their own language, often it was just nonsense. And the Greeks would say, it sounds like you're just saying, bar, 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 bar. You're just making noises. I don't know what you're trying to say. Speak Greek to me. And so they became known as the barbarians. And that's where the word barbarian comes from, from the, the, what sounds to the Greek ear, a muddled language, an unrefined language. And so to the refined Greek speaker, a foreigner who lacked their polish and cultural sensibility was thought to speak in such a non-relatable way uh, that it wasn't even worth listening to. And yet Paul says, listen, I've come to preach the gospel, and I'm going to preach it to all the Gentile nations, but not only the refined among you, not only these highly educated folks, not only these ones that have a classical education that has taught them history and, and, and art and philosophy. No, I'm going to preach to everyone, even those whose language is shameful to the, to the Greeks. I'm going to preach to them. I'm going to find a way to get that gospel into their hearts and minds. And in many ways, this was almost how the Jews looked at the Gentiles, that they were, you know, they don't have our customs, our practices, so we're going to keep them at hand's length. And so the, the, the Greeks would often think that way of those who couldn't speak Greek and who are on the fringes of the empire. And yet Paul says, I want to reach them. I want to bring the glory of God to them. And the next two terms that are compared by Paul essentially echo those first two terms. He's just in more blatant ways. He says, to the wise he's going to preach. And of course there he's referring to these Romans who were educated in the wisdom of Rome and, and had very much so advanced their thinking beyond many other cultures. But he's also preaching to the foolish, to those who are not, to the eye of the Romans, uh, refined and dignified people. Paul was not interested in limiting his sphere of influence to only those who felt comfortable at the table of academia or who established themselves socially within the culture and the mores of the Roman society. When Paul looked at those outside the faith, he didn't see and categorize them as, oh, here's the heavy hitters and here's the weaklings. I'm going to go to the heavy hitters and win them. He didn't say, oh, here's the movers and the shakers, the people who get things done. And then here's the common drovel. I'll maybe get to them eventually, but these are the people that matter. No. He saw sinners all in need of a Savior. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And remember, those words were speaking to, uh, spoken to a people in Corinth where the culture of Rome was alive and well. And they were, they were very much impressed by those who could speak with a rhetorical tongue that was winsome and, uh, and, and could argue well. And so Paul says, that's not what I'm going to do. I'm not going to come in and give you the thing that you, you kind of want culturally. I'm just going to come in and preach the gospel to you. I'm going to give you the straight truth of who Christ is. That will be enough to those whom Jesus is calling. Paul likely had a read or heard about the warnings of Jesus when he corrected his disciples after they tried to prevent the little children from gathering around him one day. They were interrupting the teacher and the disciples tried to usher them out. You remember what Jesus told them? He said in Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 16, but when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to, do, uh, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. And truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter into it. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. We think about this obligation, which is a wonderful obligation that God has put upon the shoulders of Paul. And we know that he doesn't really have a choice and he's glad not to because this is his greatest joy to see the lost nations redeemed. Does, does the non-apostle among us carry any of this obligation? Does the common Christian in the pew who is not stopped on the road to Damascus, who is not given this audible calling to serve God, do we carry any of this obligation? I would argue that we do. That if you have the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of life, that you are called to share this gospel with the people that you know. If you're a father or a mother, your obligation is first towards your children and to your spouse that you're to share the gospel with them and to encourage them with this truth that has come to define you. 
We're to share the gospel with one another, Christians. That is the best way for us to encourage one another is to point each other to Christ and to remind each other of the triumphant victory that Jesus Christ has won for us at the cross. We're to, we're to share it with the lost as much as we can and to whatever ability God has given to us. But ultimately, it is an obligation of love for our Savior, the object of our joy and our peace. If we truly know Him and have tasted of His transforming power, is it possible for us to hold that in silence and to not tell anybody about the joy that is in us? Don't we have a powerful obligation to share what has been shared with us? When we were sitting at the dinner table, uh, Drake was reflecting on what we had been learning, and he said, he said, Mr. Neves, I, I kind of have an obligation to you when I come over to dinner. And I said, what is that, Drake? And he says, whatever you serve me, because I'm grateful for you letting me be here, I feel like it's my responsibility to eat it. <laughs> and he said it with a smile. My wife's an excellent cook, and so he usually goes back for seconds. <laughs> I don't think he's feeling too obligated. But I think this, his insight implies, right? We have come to a table that is a feast of grace. It has been given to us free of charge. Don't we feel an obligation to then respond to our God with loving gratitude and share what we can about this gift that's been given to us with the people around us? We don't have to do it because we're going to go to hell if we don't. We don't have to do it because we want to earn some sort of special recognition among the saints. We do it because what a table we've been invited to. What a blessing and an honor to be near to God and to know Him. And if we enjoy what He is giving to us, this gift of fellowship with the eternal, then it should be our heart's desire and our joy to take this message to whoever will enjoy hearing it and receive it in grace. Let's pray for a moment. God, we thank you for your word. And we ask that you would settle it into our hearts, God, and that, that we would not uh, pass this off as some sort of a, uh, an exhortation to somebody else, but that we would see it as preached primarily to ourselves, God, as if we were the only one in the room. The whole church needs to hear this, Lord God, but we, no matter how diligent we have been in pursuing you, no matter how motivated we feel uh, to carry the gospel to the world, that we need to be reminded that it is a gift, a gift that comes with great joy. And Father, you have called us to participate in it. So help us, Lord, by your power to be obedient to the calling that you have placed upon us. We thank you, God, that you have provided for us inside and teaching. You have given to us the Lord's day as an encouragement, and you've given to us the table of the Lord uh, by which we might encounter again the reality of our transformation, that by Jesus Christ and him alone we have been made new. So help us to enjoy this communion today. I pray, Father, that we would rejoice in the victories you've won and that we would be refreshed in our commitment and our eagerness, Lord, to go out into the world and tell them about the joy that we have in Christ. We pray this in his perfect name. Amen.